Hello and welcome to the March edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast. In this edition we have news on consultations and features on water availability for summer 2021 and incident response planning. But to start with, Steve Isaac has announced his retirement from the RNA in his role as Director of Sustainability. Steve has had a tremendous impact on sustainability within the golf industry, providing direction and structure and developing Golf Course 2030 to provide a focus that was badly needed in the golf industry to look at sustainability in the round and the potential impact of climate change on course condition and water availability. Steve's going to be greatly missed and I think we all hope that he really enjoys his retirement. Continuing the golf industry theme, Bob Taylor from STRI has also announced his retirement after many years leading the ecological revolution in the golf industry, highlighting the benefits of the land areas managed by the golf industry and helping in the process of maintaining habitats up and down the country and across the world. Having been so closely involved with so many different projects, I find it hard to believe that Bob will completely retire. I'm sure he's going to be keeping an eye and a finger on the pulse in the golf industry over the coming years. An article in The Guardian by Patrick Barkham reported a row over UK tree planting and highlighting accusations that the Forestry Commission are funding non-native plantations that are having a damaging effect on peatland and numerous rare species. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware of the government drive that is highlighted within the article to use tree planting as a method for sequestering CO2 and to help the government reach its net zero emissions target by 2050. The government's published aim is to achieve the planting of 30,000 hectares of new trees in the UK each year. However, this article highlights accusations by conservation charities that the Forestry Commission is spending taxpayers' money on non-native plantations which have potentially damaging effects. The article goes on to report that in Cumbria, the Commission admitted to making a mistake in the funding of new plantations on peatland at Barrier Farm that threatened blanket bog and grassland, including 100 species of plants such as heath-spotted orchids. The article continues to highlight that organisations such as Plant Life, Butterfly Conservation and Dorset Wildlife Trust criticised Forestry England, the Commission's business arm, for replanting much of Wareham Forest in Dorset with conifers instead of restoring more biodiverse open heathland. Another site in Northumberland was highlighted where the Commission has begun a dispute resolution process to decide whether to fund a landowner's proposal for a plantation called Wallshield 2, which has been opposed by the RSPB, the Northumberland National Park Authority and Natural England. A quotation provided within the article by David Morris from the RSPB said, Ministers and DEFRA are breathing down the Forestry Commission's neck to get trees in the ground. We want to see trees in the ground, but we want to see the right trees in the right place. We would say that they have gone for one of the worst places with Wallshield 2. And with echoes of the ESI Environmental Podcast from last month highlighting issues around grants and the skewed perspective that they can provide when it comes to particular funding of specific projects. This article highlights the issues around the generous planting grants resulting in an apparent rush to plant non-native species in areas that are not ideal, often changing habitat which is equally important. The article provides the example of Wall Shield 1 where trees were planted on rough grassland around five years ago and the project was opposed by the RSPB and Natural England because of its size and proximity to rare and declining ground-nesting birds such as red chanks, golden plover, black grouse and curlew. The dangers of setting single targets or funding of a particular project are well known. 
we only have to look back at the rush to use diesel in an effort to reduce CO2 emissions from petrol vehicles and the consequences of that was higher particulate levels and air quality issues. The danger with the planting scheme is that we are looking at trees as being the only carbon sink and that that is patently not the case. Providing grants for trees is going to attract tree plantations potentially in the wrong place, hastily considered and rushed into implementation. So great care needs to be taken that we don't look at a single solution, that we have to look at things in the round. And that habitat and ecology, if they're being detrimentally affected by a tree planting scheme because there are grants available and there is a rush to change land use, may not be the best way. A second item caught my eye in the press as well. Sandra Laville in The Guardian, published on the 18th of February, focused on agricultural businesses and the effect that they're having on certain areas of the UK, and specifically the English-Welsh borders. The article focuses on a group called River Action, who are focusing on the state of UK rivers, and has launched its first campaign by writing to the chief executive of Noble Foods. Now, for those who don't know who Noble Foods are, they are one of the biggest egg producers in the UK, and based in close proximity to the River Wye, the Wye Valley has seemingly become a bit of a mecca for free-range egg production and also barn egg production. And this is having a detrimental effect on river quality. It is suggested that there have been 243 violations of legislation designed to curb agricultural pollution on waterways in England. However, for all of those breaches, there have currently not been any prosecutions. In broader terms, the article highlights the scale of pollution in England. Just 14% of rivers in England are rated as in a healthy condition in 2020. And for the first time, no river achieved good chemical status, suggesting that pollution from chemical and agricultural use is having a huge effect on river quality. It also highlights that sewage wastewater discharge from water companies into rivers accounts for damage to 36% of waterways and runoff from agricultural and industries is responsible for 40% of the damage. The Wye Valley, however, appears to be disproportionately affected and the article highlights that there are approximately 500 farms with a total of 1,420 intensive poultry sheds containing 44 million birds around the counties of Herefordshire, Shropshire and Radnorshire, raising concern about pollution of the waters. One of the brands of the Noble Food Company is the Happy Egg Company. And although the welfare standards are the leading advertised element for the Happy Egg Company, River Action have asked for more details of the mitigation the company takes to prevent highly damaging nutrient runoff into the River Wye. The Guardian article has a quotation from a spokesperson for Noble Foods who said, We take our responsibility to protect the environment extremely seriously and we have been working in close collaboration with the Wye Agri-Food Partnership and the Uskan Wye River Trust Soil Erosion Group to develop long-term solutions to this complex situation that affects the entire agricultural industry. It is our aim to deliver a plan which can be successfully implemented across the farming sector. So we all have to take care about who we buy from, what are purchasing decisions and the effect that they can have on the suppliers. It's asking the right questions. What impacts are my buying decisions having on the wider environment? And where possible, taking an ethical decision. A policy paper has been issued titled Drought, How Water Companies Plan for Dry Weather and Drought, published on the 11th of February 2021. It highlights that water companies in England and Wales must produce a drought plan every five years under the Water Industry Act 1991, as amended by the Water Act 2003. A company must plan 
and state how it is intending to maintain a secure water supply and protect the environment during dry weather and drought events. A water company's drought plan is linked to the strategic 25-year water resource management plan. The consultation on the update will be conducted on the gov.uk website and the invitation to comment extends to water companies, organisations and customers. Following on and as an almost partner consultation, there is a request for comments on a consultation titled Determining Areas of Water Stress in England, published on the 11th of February by the Environment Agency. And the consultation sets out the latest method and initial outcomes for determining areas of water stress in England. The Environment Agency is to advise the Secretary of State on which areas should be determined to be areas of serious water stress. The determination is only to inform whether water companies are in areas of serious water stress and can consider charging for water by metered volume for all customers. Compulsory metering is one of the options that can be considered in their water resource management plans to manage water supplies and more particularly demand management. Once again details are available on the .gov.uk website and following on from these two consultations on drought resilience and determination of areas of water stress I can give a Further update on the water use and resilience in the leisure sector project that we're running for the water companies currently. For those of you who are regular listeners to the ESI Environmental Podcast, I apologise you're going to be aware of this, but for first-time listeners, the water use and resilience project that we have been retained by the English and Welsh water companies to undertake has three elements. Firstly, to benchmark water consumption across the entire leisure sector in England and Wales. Secondly, in the light of the National Framework for Water Resource, highlighting the discrepancy between demand and supply over the next 25 years, this ESI project is designed to engage with the national associations and representative bodies of the leisure sector to work with them and to agree and identify strategies and toolkits along with targets to reduce water consumption of public water supply, potable mains, primarily used for irrigation in the leisure sector. So it's turf grass irrigation which is taking the majority of the water from these sectors. And thirdly, to agree a method as to how the agreed strategies and toolkits will be implemented by the association's membership to help reduce water consumption within the next five years. We are now starting to get data from the water industry, highlighting the consumption of water within the leisure sector and also its source. We're currently starting the process of analysing the volumes to provide greater detail on the leisure sector's impact on water resource. Numerous discussions and meetings have been undertaken with the associations and we are also in the process of helping them to develop action plans that will lead to engagement with their membership to help reduce consumption, to raise awareness of water resource as a critical limiting factor for the leisure sector over the coming decades. The most complex element of the discussions we have had so far involves the process of how to engage with individual members at operator level to help them understand the limits of water availability across huge areas of England and Wales and the likely impacts that that will have on their ability to use public water supply for irrigation over the next few years. In simple terms, the combination of changing climate, which will have a significant effect on the intensity of rainfalls and, uh, rainfall and their frequency, increasing temperature, frequency of drought, together with increasing population and per capita demand, are all significantly limiting the availability of public water supply over the coming years. This combined with historic over-abstraction having a detrimental effect on water quality and habitat is also having to be addressed within the National Framework on Water Resource. 
We're still in a situation where 66% of golf clubs use mains water for irrigation and demand forecasts all show that this will not be possible to maintain. The need for change is now. It is essential. If you as an industry are going to protect your future water supply and your very sustainability as a business, then you need to start taking steps and you need to start taking steps now. I was interested to find out what other leisure operators do in areas of more significant water stress. And I had a really interesting conversation with an ex-colleague who's now director of a golf club in Cyprus. And we were having a discussion about water availability and how they deal with irrigation and turf grass management on an island with limited resource and high temperatures. Interestingly, he said at the start of the conversation that he thought that I was overestimating where they may be in Cyprus when it came to water conservation and water use and problems around irrigation. But the conversation went on and I simply asked him, well, what have you done? He started off by saying, well, we created a dam because there's a stream that comes down from the mountain. So we created the dam and, and pounded the water so that we can actually access that water through the summer. OK, so I said, you've created a dam. What else have you done? And he said, well, we do have a pipeline. We've installed a two kilometre pipeline to a secondary source of water, which is a public reservoir so periodically through the year we may not be able to draw on that as a source of water but we have got the pipeline there as, as a second source if we run out from the water that we've we've impounded with the dam okay so apart from a dam and a two kilometer long pipe that you've installed to maintain your water supply have you done anything else and he said well we've looked at desalination and we've got a desalination plant which we can use although we have issues with that because there is uh, ecological sensitivity within the bay that we would be abstracting. So it, that really would be a last resort. OK, so apart from a dam, a two kilometre pipeline and a desalination plant, what else have you done? He went on to say, well, there's an expectation from the players that actually during the summer in droughts, the fairways are going to go brown. And we're going to have to limit the areas that we can irrigate simply because we don't have sufficient supply of water to achieve the irrigation to keep everything looking green. OK, so apart from a dam, a two kilometre pipeline, desalination plant and player education. What have you done? Well, I think that's pretty compelling. They are and have to be far more aware of water as a finite resource, as a precious resource than we are currently in the UK. But having said that, water availability in the southern half of England is getting towards a situation of an island in the eastern Mediterranean. As I outlined at the start of this short section of the podcast the project that we're working on that is funded by the water companies in England and Wales looking at water use and resilience within the leisure sector a large part of that is the engagement process with the national associations and I am still getting an impression that many of the conversations I am having with the leaders of the associations in the leisure sector shows that there is a, a lack of understanding I still have to help them understand the situation that we're actually facing and that is going to go on in the second stage of the project to working with individual operators. And we're going to have to be making the same case. We have to create the understanding that we are in a region of water stress, that there are going to have to be tough decisions taken about where water as a resource will be allocated because we cannot satisfy all of the demands. Many of the projects to help you build in resilience to your water supply are going to take a number of years. There are some very quick fixes, but if you're looking at installing a reservoir, it can take 
upwards of five years by the time you've gone through the planning process to actually get water available to you to use on your golf course or on your leisure facility more generally. And I want to make it really clear, and this is going to sound quite brutal, but the situation as it currently stands is that there will not be sufficient water for the leisure sector to continue using public water supply from the mains for turf grass irrigation. To quote one of the water efficiency managers that we've been working with, Andrew Tucker from Thames Water, at a seminar that we ran at Woburn in 2019, he said, it is insanity to get world-class drinking water and throw it on the ground. The Water Resilience Project is due to finish at the end of May 2021, and the report going back to the water industry has to highlight the effective measures that national associations and representative bodies of the leisure sector will take to change the behaviour of their membership in terms of irrigation water. And to reiterate, this project is not a research project. The outcomes of this project have to provide the strategies and toolkits that will lead to a change in behaviour amongst the leisure sector operators to reduce water consumption. I feel I also need to highlight, for the benefit of the leisure sector, a lot of clients that are already working hard on this as an issue, ensuring their futures, protecting their water resilience, looking at flood relief for the local communities and protecting their water supply for the future and through the summer. But the National Framework for Water Resource has already set the milestones and timelines for this project. The Water Use and Resilience Project is a consultation tool to work with the national associations but it has to fit within the timelines that are already agreed and set by DEFRA, the Environment Agency and the water companies. The latest milestone was the publication of the updated Regional Resource Position Statements, which was due on the 1st of March and has now been uploaded and available at the Regional Water Resource Group's websites. This document updates the projected demands and allocation of water resources by use and sector, and it is informed by consultations with industry representatives I was asked by a very senior figure within the golf industry to help him understand what time period we were talking about before we were facing potential restrictions on water and also when golf facilities should start putting in place resilience plans and their own captive sources of water for irrigation. I tackled it in two ways. Firstly, if we have a summer in 2021 that is similar to 2020 with continued hand washing and the forecast staycations, then it is entirely possible that 2021 will be the first point at which water has to be restricted for use for turf grass irrigation. Secondly, I went on to the implementation of resilience projects, many of which are available on various websites for the national associations, but the uptake of which has been a little slow. So I suggested that the best time for any leisure facility to put in place resilience measures was five years ago. The second best time for a leisure facility to put resilience measures in place is now. To round off the March edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast, I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at pollution incident response planning. And this has been prompted largely by a contact that I had, not from a client, but through another contact where they had polluted a local watercourse with a pesticide, which within the mix of that pesticide had a dye, obviously to identify where they could actually, or where they had already sprayed. But when that pollutant went into the watercourse, of course, it had a bright marker dye with it. This was reported and the Environment Agency investigated, took samples, identified the contaminant, and also then identified the source. 
resulting in a potential prosecution. However, this incident highlights a much broader problem in the leisure sector. In my experience, it is very rare for a leisure operator to have a meaningful and robust incident response plan. And the results of that lack of a pollution incident response plan could be catastrophic. In terms of fines, they're unlimited. Cost of cleanup is a prerequisite of a prosecution. And the legal liability falls on the directors and officers of the facility, with the possibility of criminal prosecution and even jail sentences. And I've always found it interesting that this contrasts with health and safety, which appears to be a far better known risk as far as directors and officers are concerned. Time, effort and money is very readily put into health and safety to ensure compliance, to reduce the risk of prosecution. However, environmental management and pollution incident response planning seems to be taking a back seat. Nobody seems to be really pushing the idea that the dangers and the risks faced by directors and officers in terms of the costs, fines and criminal prosecution are just the same. As far as the Environment Agency are concerned, any commercial premises where you store, use, process, handle toxic or polluting substances, chemicals, oils, even food or drink, beverages, should have an incident response plan. And in terms of risk evaluation, the primary causes of environmental incidents of pollution are delivery and the use of materials, overfilling containment vessels, plant and equipment failure, containment failure, fires, explosions, wrong connections to pipe work, sewers or other pipes, incompatible materials coming into contact, uncontrolled reactions, discharge of partially treated or raw effluent, vandalism or flooding, an increasing risk certainly for many sites now. And these sorts of incidents could affect your drainage system or surface water, aquatic ecosystems, groundwater or soil, air quality from toxic fumes or airborne pollutants that are a re result of either a fire or a chemical reaction. The onus is on the operator to put in safe systems to reduce the risk of an incident and also to ensure that their plans and management reduce the impacts in the event of an incident. And in most situations, the breach of law is actually allowing the pollutant to escape. Although there is an expectation from the Environment Agency that a well-managed facility would have an environmental management system in place and a pollution incident response plan, it is not something that they have the manpower to check. And as with many elements of environmental management, the test comes following an incident. At that point, the Environment Agency would look to see what systems you had in place. And the onus then falls very squarely on the facility and the directors and officers of a facility to show that they have not been negligent in their management of the risk, that they have undertaken the correct risk management assessments, that they understand the potential impacts of the materials that they're handling, and they have taken robust measures to prevent spill and in the event of an accidental spill to reduce the impacts of that event. Documentary evidence and a trail of management data is critical in proving that you have managed the risk correctly. If you have no documentation, if you don't have an environmental management system and if you don't have a pollution incident response plan which is written, reviewed, updated and logged not only with multiple people within your own organisation but also preferably with the fire and rescue services so that they understand the risks that they're facing in the event of an incident at your site, that they understand and know 
where your drainage system is, where it falls, where the outflows are, where your fuel storage is, where your pesticides are stored, how they're stored. All of these elements have to be taken into account. And all of these elements, if they're recorded in advance of an incident, will save time and potentially will save pollution and possibly lives. As with anything relating to an environmental management system, the process of establishing a pollution incident response plan is systematic. You've got to gather the data and you've got to assess your site for risk. You then use that information to prepare your plan. You consult on your plan, both internally and externally. Publishing and communicating the plan internally and externally to, is essential. And testing and exercising your plan, creating that validation, understanding its shortcomings and adapting it and improving it, learning those lessons, and then reviewing and updating the system, whether that's through shortcomings appearing from your practice or changes to your facility. It is evolving. It's a living, breathing thing. It isn't something that you write once and then put in the bottom of a filing cabinet. One question I always ask clients, and I always insist that they have a good answer, is if you have a pollution incident response plan, it has to be widely shared, and that's across departments within your facility. For a golf facility, it is the 7 o'clock in the evening on a Saturday when the course team typically have left for the day. They may not live in close proximity, although there are a number of, of clubs that I visit and, and clients that I have where you have a course manager who lives very close or even on site. But having an understanding amongst all of the staff so that the clubhouse manager, a bar manager, even bar staff understand what's going on, know where the incident response plan is and know what they should do in the event of an incident. And this is particularly important during holiday periods. If you have key members of staff who are on holiday, you have to have a deputy who can step in and know precisely what to do. Not to get the plan out and start reading it at that point, but to understand the plan thoroughly. The hazardous materials that you have on site are likely to change in terms of their quantities as you're using products or having new deliveries. This is particularly important with pesticides and fuel. It has long been a requirement that pesticide stock levels be maintained accurately and should be available at all times. And this is a large part of the reason why. But to benchmark your system, you also need to ensure that the hazardous materials that you have on site have a mirroring pollution prevention equipment inventory. And this should reflect any changes in products that you use to ensure that you have the correct pollution prevention equipment on site to deal with a spill of that particular type. And also in terms of overall quantities. The site plan should include buildings, storage areas, but also the drainage layout so that there is a clear understanding of surface water and foul water drainage systems, their collection points and exit points, and also the contours of the land area. If you have a concrete pad for your maintenance facility, it's where runoff water, surface water runoff from that ends up intercepting with porous or unmade ground mapping the surrounding watercourses or groundwater flows and borehole abstraction points, whether they're on your land and almost more importantly, off your land. If a spill at your site is going to have a detrimental effect on water quality in neighbouring areas, then you need to be able to try and prevent that fugitive pollutant from escaping. And if you are unable to do that, then you need to have the contact details for all of those people in the area to prevent pumping of boreholes that may become contaminated from your spill.
Once you have established and written your plan, developing the supporting emergency procedures is absolutely critical. Key information that needs to be included is the management chain and procedures for which key staff to alert and in which order. Having standby and rotor systems so that it's not necessarily the same person on each occasion or to cover holidays or time off. Clearly defining the roles and responsibilities in advance. Naming staff and contractors trained in incident response. These are all key areas that need to be addressed to speed up your response to an incident that happens on your site. Testing your plan is also critical. This doesn't necessarily need to be a physical test, but at your management meetings or a particular management meeting, picking up this as uh, an element, as a topic of your environmental management, you can go through a desktop exercise. You can create a scenario and make sure that people are practiced in terms of who needs to be contacted. What assets do you need to draw in to help prevent the incident or reduce the impact of the incident? What equipment are you going to need? And as part of the staff training program, you should include an understanding of the potential harm to people and the environment from the materials that you hold on site. Information on the sensitivity of the surrounding areas. Environmental responsibility of your business. The correct personal protective equipment and appropriate health and safety training. Reporting procedure if there's a risk to surface or groundwater land contamination. Contact points for local water companies if local water or sewage systems are contaminated by the spill. And safe and correct use of the spill cleanup equipment. And following an incident, you then have to deal with the contaminated absorbance. So as you can see, a pollution incident response plan is not a simple thing to draft, but it is an essential component of the operation of any leisure facility. Failure to provide a detailed response plan could land you in very, very serious trouble, but it does tend to be in the event of an incident. It's the follow-up process which will be undertaken by the Environment Agency in the event of the investigation of a spill. So that brings us to the end of the March edition of the ESI Environmental Podcast. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you are notified of new episodes as they become available. And if I can provide you with any further information on any of the subjects covered or you would like us to look at a specific area or topic that we haven't covered so far, please feel free to get in contact. My name is Tony Hansen. The email address is thansen at esinternational.co.uk. Thanks and goodbye.